Good morning. Welcome to the month of July. All right. Well, we are continuing in our Great Question series, and not only are we continuing our Great Question series, but we're going to end our Great Question series today. It's just a short one. Last week, Joe started things off by talking about Scripture and why we can trust it and why we know that it's true. And he culminated with John twenty thirty one, which I have here on the screen for you. And the word if that you see there is not in the scriptures. I've added that. I'll talk about that in just a second. But this is what he culminated with last week. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John chapter 20, verse 31. It is the reason why John has written. He wants people to know who Jesus is so they can believe in what he has done. It's the point of the scriptures to help us know the God of the scriptures. And so this week, what our task is, is if we believe this to be true, if we believe that the scriptures have been written so that we may know Jesus, that he is the son of God, and by believing in him, that we may have life in his name, then... How do we follow him with all of our life? So that is our task. And we're going to ask some questions to try to uncover how are we going to do this? How are we going to follow this God who sent his son to die for us so that we might live? And to do that, we're going to ask some some questions out of the Ten Commandments. And why the Ten Commandments? Well, I I want to talk about the Israelite people here for just a second. The Israelite people found themselves in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. But this was the chosen people. This was a group of people that had the promises of the patriarchs. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they were going to have land and descendants and blessing forever. And here they find themselves in slavery to Pharaoh. And God reached out to them and sent them a prophet whose name was Moses. And through Moses, great plagues were done and the people were rescued. They were saved from the hand of Pharaoh and they were led to the Red Sea. And at the Red Sea, they faced almost certain doom. They couldn't swim across with their possessions and their families. They couldn't turn back because the army was approaching them. God reached down, and as Moses reached up his staff, the waters parted and the land was dry, and God had saved his people. He had saved them from slavery, he had saved them from the army, and he had brought them to the other side, and then he led them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he began to teach them, this is how you follow me. We're not too different than the Israelite people. We might not have been in slavery to a pharaoh in Egypt, but we were born enslaved to sin. Ephesians says that we were born dead in our transgressions and sins, and God did not leave us there. He sent us a greater Moses. He sent us Jesus. Jesus came and lived his life, a perfect life, and he died on a cross in our place, taking on our penalty of sin, and he raised to new life, and he has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now on this other side, believing in this Jesus who he sent, we say, how do we follow him now? 
And I think the Ten Commandments have some wisdom for us. So if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're going to ask our first question of the morning. And our first question of the, is this. What place does God get in my life? This God who has sacrificed for me, this God who has done great things for me, what place does he get in my life? And we record the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a fairly simple verse. The words aren't very hard to understand. In fact, if we were to um, take an audience survey, we'd probably get the right answer. We should have no other gods before him. There's no place higher than God's place in our life. We know the answers, but we also know that this is tough. You see, for the Israelite people, they were about to go into the promised land. Even though God knew it was going to be another 40 years before they'd get there, he was preparing them for this. And what were they going to face in the promised land? They were going to face Canaanites and Hittites and Jebusites and all those other ites that are listed. And they had gods that were made of wood and stone, made by human hands. And they would pray to them and sacrifice to them because they wanted fertility and they wanted crops and they wanted water. And God knew that his people were going to be tempted to go into this other nation and serve these other gods for a variety of reasons. And he made it very clear from the beginning, you shall have no gods before me. And the second commandment, he'll say, you'll have no carved images or idols. Now the problem for us is that we've gotten a little too sophisticated. I don't think if I walk into any of your homes, I'm going to find images made of wood and stone that we bow down to and pray for the turnout of our day. But we have other things that we worship. You see, we worship money. We worship power. We worship prestige. We worship relationships. We worship sex and pleasure and entertainment. We worship our families. When God has given us good things and we make them God things, they become bad things. They become an idol. An idol is anything that we put in the place that God deserves. And so that little space that I left you on your bulletin, I don't have any blanks for you to fill out, but what I want you to take a moment to consider is what is that thing or those things that you put into the place of God? What are those things that vie with him for your affection? And if you have the courage to write something down, will you have the courage to lay it down? As I was thinking about this message this week, as I was driving back from Colorado, I I couldn't help but think of Abraham. Abraham is the lead patriarch. Abraham was the one who God said, everything is going to come through you. Land, blessing, children, descendants, everything is going to come through you. And Abraham had a cherished possession. That possession was Isaac, his son. Not only was it his only son who lived with him, the apple of his eye, this was the one through whom the promise was going to come. Everything was about Isaac, and God said, I need you to take Isaac and go out of camp 
and go up on the mountain and I need you to sacrifice him to me. As a father of three, I I can't even imagine what Abraham was going through. I can't imagine the emotions and the thoughts and the fears and the struggle. But there's Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 taking Isaac out of the camp. Hey, Dad, where we're going? And we're going to sacrifice. Okay, great. We've done that before. This could be good. Okay. Hey, Dad, we forgot the animal. God's going to provide the animal. Hey, Dad, why are you tying me to the altar? Hey, Dad, why are you taking out your knife? As Abraham sat there with his knife raised over his son, God said, stop. I have provided a sacrifice for you. I have provided a ram over here for you. But now I know, now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, including your one and only son. Sometimes God will come to us and demand that we lay down that one thing that we don't want to lay down, that we want to hold on to with everything that we are, but he is saying, I'm worth it. Why is he worth it? I kept referring to Isaac as Abraham's one and only son, and I did that intentionally. Because the God who is saying, you shall have no idols before me, did not hold back his one and only son. No, he gave his one and only son that he might come and live and die for you and for me. And this God who has given it all is worth it all. You see, God doesn't want to be on your list. I love making lists. I'm probably not alone. I love making lists of like best quarterbacks or best basketball players. I love making lists, right? God doesn't want to be the first thing on your list. No, no, he he wants to be your list. He is your one and your only. You will have nothing else that vies for his spot. So that leads us to a second question. If, if I have to forsake everything else for him, if, 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 if everything else takes a back seat to him, can I really trust that he'll take care of me? Because I, I spent a lot of time worrying about my career, and I spent a lot of time worrying about the, the bank account, and I spent a lot of time worrying about my family. If I, if I really put my, my first and my best and I give that to God, is he really going to care for me? I think Moses talks about this in Exodus 20, verse 8, where he records the words of the Lord. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day... Is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why did he rest? Was he tired? The Bible says that God does not sleep, nor does he slumber. He wasn't tired. No, he rested as a model of what we would get to do. He created the world in six days, and he took the seventh day to rest and reflect on what he had done. Just a couple of chapters before Exodus 20, God is dealing with a hungry people. And he gives them bread from heaven. We call it manna. Manna literally means, what is it? 
They went out of their tents in the morning and they found this stuff and they didn't know what it was. And God said, collect it. And they went and collected it and took it back to their tents and they were able to provide and eat for their, eat for themselves and provide for their families, but they didn't have to do any work. They just went outside and God had provided the food and they were thankful for it and they went back in their tents and they ate and they did that six days a week, but something different happened on that sixth day. On that sixth day, God said, you're going to go and you're going to collect enough for two days. Because on that seventh day, it's going to be a Sabbath. It's going to be a holy day. You're going to rest from your labor on that day. And you are going to bask in the provision that I have given you. Because it is not by the work of your hands are you going to sustain yourself. No, it is by the work of mine. And you have an opportunity on this day to gather with your families and remember how great that I am. And see, our lives are a little bit different, right? I didn't wake up this morning and go out on the front lawn and there was an omelet there waiting for me. No, we've been given jobs and we work jobs and we put the money in a bank account and we go to the grocery store and we get our stuff and we get up in the morning, we pull our thing of, pour our thing of Honey Nut Cheerios and there we go, right? But why do we have that cereal? Why do we have that money? Why do we have the things in our life We have jobs because God has given us skills and abilities. We have jobs because he has put us in the right spot at the right time. He's given us the courage to do the work, and we've taken home a paycheck. And with that paycheck, we've been able to provide for our families to get food. Because provision is not about us. And that is why we sit here and we gather on the Lord's day to reflect on how good and how great he is because it is not by the work of our hands that we provide for ourselves. It is his. It is why we sit at a table and bless the Lord for the food, for the hands that make it and for the ways that we've had to provide it. Because he is the source and the sustainer of all things and we are trusting in him And he has said no other gods before me, and we can trust him to provide. Next question that we're going to tackle this morning is, what does God have to say about my earthly relationships? He said no other gods before me. He said I'm going to provide for you. Now, what does he care about the way we interact with one another? Well, the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments all have to do with the way we treat one another. Right? We shouldn't murder one another. We shouldn't lie to one another. We shouldn't, we shouldn't bear false witness against one another. But there's one that gets really specific about relationships, right? It says, honor your father and your mother in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. So often in the books of Moses is God talking to parents about their children. You need to teach and train your children the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart in it, right? You, you need to pass these things down. Whenever your children have an answer or a question, you need to have an answer that says, why are these rocks here? Well, these rocks are here because of what the Lord is going to do. But here, Moses is talking to the children. Children in the room, your God cares about the way you treat your parents. He calls you to honor them. Now, if you notice, it doesn't say honor them if you like them today. It doesn't say honor them if 
you agree with what they're saying. It doesn't say honor them if that's the way you woke up. No, it just says honor them. And then you have Paul in the book of Ephesians. And he takes this passage from Moses, but then he expands on it. And in Ephesians chapter 6, he starts in verse 1, and he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. God cares about the way children honor and respect their parents, and there's blessing for that. But then he talks to fathers and parents. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, you have been given a great authority. You have been given a great responsibility having young ones in your home. And it is your charge that you would train them to be able to go out in this world, but most importantly, that you would train them to know Jesus. And you have been called to discipline them and help them see the error of their ways, but you are to do this in a way where you do not provoke them. The old translations used to say, exacerbate them. You don't want to push them into rebellion against you and the Lord. No, Paul, when he talked about the Thessalonian church, he used maternal and paternal language to talk about how tenderly he cared for the people of that church. How much more should we as parents tenderly care for our kids, showing them the great love our heavenly Father has shown us so that they may see his love through us? He cares about our earthly relationships. Then he talks about masters and slaves, or in the ESV, he says masters and bond servants. Now we hear the word slave, and that carries a whole weight of meaning and the evils of the things that have happened in this world, and that's not quite what the text here is talking about. A better way to understand what he's getting at is an employee-employer relationship. And he says, bond servants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere hearts as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. If you are in here and you are an employee, you have someone that you work for, you are not just working for the man. You are not just working for a corporation. No, you are working for your king. When you serve, you are not just serving the one who gives you a paycheck. You are serving the one who laid everything down for you. And he wants you to have that in mind as you honor your earthly boss or master. But again, it's not one-sided. In verse 9, he says this, Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Masters, you need to treat them the same way they treat you, and do not use your authority. Do not use your um, threats against them, because when God looks down and sees them, he doesn't see you up here. He sees his children, who should be relating to each other well. 
if you have people who are under you in any form or fashion, God cares about the way you shepherd and treat them. But Paul then spends the majority of his time talking about the marital relationship of husband and wife back in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. I had the pleasure of getting to officiate a wedding on a Friday night between just this great guy and gal. And I got to stand before them and I got to talk about Christ in his church and how Christ gave everything for his church and the church is supposed to adore its Savior. And when we do that as man and wife, when husbands love their wives and when wives respect their husbands, it shows a message to the world that is far beyond a great marriage. It shows the very gospel of Jesus to a world who is looking on. Christ never leaves his church, but loves her sacrificially. And we have a call as husbands to love our wives and as wives to respect our husbands that goes far beyond what we ever could imagine. God cares about our earthly relationships, but we sit in a room like this, and here's the reality. Our relationships are broken, every one of us. We have things that are not the way they should be. And so what would it look like for a few of those to mend this morning? Not every relationship is going to be repaired. We have in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, and they go different ways, and we never have any inkling, any evidence that they come back together. Wouldn't be shocked if they did, but we don't have that story. But there are some relationships that are not meant to break. The relationships between a parent and a child, and a child and a parent, that is not meant to break. But so often in our sin-plagued world, those relationships are fractured. What would it look like for grace to be extended or received? What would it look like for humility to be shown as parents and children reconcile and have a relationship that is honoring to one another? You might find yourself in the workplace right now with a boss that you can't stand and an employee that just drives you nuts. What would it look like for you to say, you know what, I'm going to care more about that person than my situation. And I'm going to sit down and we're going to have a really honest conversation. And I'm going to take ownership of things that I could take ownership for. And I'm going to see if we can work through these struggles because God cares about them because he died for them. And the way I relate to them matters. What about that husband and wife relationship? There are, many so, there are so many yeah buts, yeah buts that we can talk about what goes on between a husband and a wife. And I know that that is the hardest relationship for, for us to navigate in this world. There are ups and there are downs, but Christ does not leave his church. What would it look like for husbands and wives who are fractured or fracturing to sit down and say, in humility, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm going to take responsibility for some things. And we're going to have a great conversation here because we're going to work for something that is greater than ourselves. Because when we are married, we are a picture of Christ and his church. And sometimes that requires laying down your life.
God cares about our earthly relationships. And part of earthly relationships is the idea of sex. And so the next question we're going to answer this morning is, what is God's plan for sex? In the book of Exodus chapter 20, Moses gives sex five words. You shall not commit adultery. It's a pretty easy thing to define. If I am in a committed relationship, I cannot seek sexual fulfillment outside of that relationship. If I am looking to get into a relationship, I cannot seek someone who is in a committed relationship to find that fulfillment. That's pretty simple. But God has much more to say on the subject of sex. We're going to begin in the book of Genesis chapter 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Genesis is the very first book as you're getting to know about who this God is. And in the very first chapter, God creates the heavens and the world and everything in it. And in the beginning of chapter 2, he restates creation. And you get to this man who has this task of naming the animals. And in verse 24, it says, therefore, a man, right? So therefore, what is it therefore? What did Adam, the first man, what did he just do? Well, he was sitting in front of these animals, and he's getting to name them. Can you think of something that would be more fun than getting to name animals for the first time? Right? Elephant. Now, I know he wasn't using English, okay? Like, I, I get this, right? Tiger. Like, hippopotamus, right? And then all of a sudden, he's like, hey, um, there are two of all of them. There's, there's only one of me. Something's not fitting. God causes him to fall into a deep sleep and he takes a rib from Adam and from Adam he creates the first woman and the man wakes up and he has this first meeting with this woman and he knows that she was made for him. And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is God's plan for sex. One man, one woman, in the context of marriage. I'm convinced that God talked about this so early in Genesis because he knew that this was going to be such a hard thing for us to navigate. The concept of sex has been a problem in every culture, in every day, in every age. And so Jesus comes and he talks about sex more in the book of Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You already know this teaching. You have driven, you have built boxes around this teaching. You know how to get around this. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, if you know the Sermon on the Mount, you know Jesus is about to blow that up and expand it. And he says this, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's the reality for us. There is not one of us who is not broken in the area of sex that has not strayed from God's plan in some way. 
It is something that we are all are constantly having to be focused on and work toward. And so what is God's plan for sex? God's plan for sex is that you find fulfillment in the gift that he has given you in one man and one woman in the context of marriage. But you don't know, Brian. You don't know my story. I have needs, and my needs are not being met. And I had to look somewhere else. I do believe that we all have needs. But our greatest need is for a Savior. Our greatest need is not meant to be fulfilled in a spouse or even in a sexual relationship. Our greatest need is meant to be filled by God himself. And when we put the need of sex in the place that God is supposed to meet, we have made sex an idol. And God has said, you shall have no other gods before me. I do know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes that you should not abstain from sexual relationships in a marriage except for a time so that you will pray so that temptation will not seek in. And there is a healthy give and take that happens in a marriage relationship. But if you find yourself in the context of marriage, God's plans for sex is for that one woman or for that one man for the rest of your life. That means you may not seek another partner outside the context of your own marriage. And you may not seek an image that would substitute. Many of us have our phones with us. We use our phones sometimes to read scripture, but oftentimes we use a thing like a phone to find things that we shouldn't look at. Any man who has looked at something, any woman who has looked at something with lustful intent in their heart has already committed adultery. If you are here and you are single, God has not put you in that relationship yet. Sex is off the table. It's not part of his plan. And God's plan is what's best for you. It's what he wants for you. It's because he wants to let you know that he is enough for you. And so our final question this morning is, is God enough for me? Is God enough for me? And in the book of Exodus, the very last of the Ten Commandments, he says this in chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Some of that stuff's just really easy, right? I can stand before you this morning and say, I have never coveted your donkey. Okay? I'm pretty sure I'm never going to covet your ox, okay? We'll see what happens, but like, but, but we know that we've all coveted. We've all looked at something and said, you know, I'd, I'd really like that. And then it goes from, I, I'd really like that to, I, you know, I, I kind of need that. And it goes from, I, I kind of need that to, You know, I I deserve that. To God owes me that. If he really loved me, he would provide this thing that I want. Because the heart of covetousness, covetousness is thinking that we are owed something, that there is something that we must have. And God is saying, you shall not do that. So how do we live? How do we live when we don't feel like we have enough? 
Or how do we live when we feel like we have too much? I think Paul has an answer for us in the book of Philippians. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secrets of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Don't you want to know that secret? I want to know that secret. How, how do I learn to live when I'm over here or when I'm over here in any circumstance? How do I do that? Well, it's this verse we've all heard before, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love teaching this verse to kids, right? What does this mean? It means I can do anything. Great. So we have this big cement pole in our mountain room downstairs. What I need you to do is stand over here, run as hard as you can and run through it. I can't do that. Well, it says you can do all things. So what does it mean when it says I can do all things? Because I'm never going to make it to the NBA. Sorry to break the news to you. It's found in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In any circumstance that God has brought me into, I know how to survive. The secret is the one who gives me strength. And when I don't think I have enough, and when I don't have what I think that I need or I think that I want, I have Jesus and I have everything that I need. And when God has blessed me and I have an abundance, the stuff is not what I need. What I need is Jesus and I can have him too. And so my question or my statement for you this morning is this. Are you content with Jesus, with who you are, with what you have, with where you're at, with what is going on right here, right now? Because if you are not content with Jesus, with everything that is going on right here, right now, you will not be content with him when you get whatever it is that you think you want. I'm going to say that one more time. Are you content with Jesus in the here and now, with who you are, with what you have, with what you do, with where you're going, with everything in your life? Are you content with Jesus right here, right now? Because if you're not, you will not be content with him when you get whatever it is that you think you want. So God has given us these 10 commandments. And the first four talk about our relationship to him. We're to have no other gods before him. We're not to have any carved images. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Keep it holy. What, what is the point of these commandments? Well, Moses restates them in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And right after he restates the Ten Commandments, he goes into Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall do What? You shall love him with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. Everything that you have got goes into loving the one and only. The last six commandments talk about how we're going to relate to one another. We're not, we're not supposed to murder each other or steal from each other. We're not supposed to lie to each other. We're not supposed to commit adultery with each other's spouses. We're not supposed to covet we get to the great commandment 
in the New Testament. And Jesus is asked in three different stories. What is the greatest commandment? What does it mean for me to follow the law? What does it mean for us to, to understand everything that's going on? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. And then in the genius of Jesus, he adds in Leviticus. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do you follow this God that you believe in? This God who has laid down his life for you. How do you give him your life? You love him with everything that you are. Because you understand how much he has done for you. And then you turn and you love those God has placed around you. Because he loves them just as much too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to be in your word this morning. And thank you that we have so many teachers to come behind. Father, you have taught us through Moses and you have taught us through Paul. But most of all, you have taught us about yourself through your son. And Father, his example of love is something that we can model and is what you are turning us into. Father, I pray that we would be people who love like Jesus because Jesus has first loved us. And Father, may we go out into this world and be your hands and your feet to those we come across. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.